Um, some of you might not have um, the, um, the handout here. I see one gentleman here that doesn't have it. So if, you, if, you're, if you're sharing, a, if you're beside somebody and you don't mind um, sharing a handout, that would be, that would be helpful. If you're looking at the page numbers, you will notice that um, <clears throat> some pages are missing. Um, I found myself getting carried away this week when I ended up with something like 24 pages and, and I got one of those spousal rebukes that you're welcome. She said, you are not going to photocopy that many pages for those people. They'll think you're crazy. So um, I, um, I omitted some footnotes, but I, I, I can't help. I mean, if, you, if you're not excited about the Great Commission and, and you don't want to sort of look into the Great Commission, um, there's kind of a problem. It's sort of a spiritual monitor. I mean, the Great Commission is our marching orders. It's the climax to, uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. It's what Christians are all about. It's our, uh, our mandate. And so last week we began to look at the Great Commission and we looked at Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And we noticed, just to review, three things about it. We noticed that it had a background, and that it had a basis, and that it had a booster. Three Bs, that tacky but helpful way in which preachers often summarize, summarize things through alliteration. The background lay in two Old Testament passages in particular, the last verses of the Old Testament, where a man named Cyrus, a king named Cyrus, gave a speech very much like this. And this man named Cyrus was a um, harbinger of the Messiah who was to come. And so this is a way of Jesus affirming his nature as the Messiah. And the other text by way of background was the end of the book of uh, Deuteronomy and the beginning of the book of Judges, where Moses was on the mountain and God told him that there was going to be a successor who were going to move into the land and take it. And so here Jesus as we've seen so many times through the uh, Gospel of Matthew, um, epitomizes Old Testament figures. So Jesus, the new Moses, is giving his marching orders to us who are his Joshua's. Only by great contrast, we are to go and not conquer the land in a militaristic way, but conquer it in the most upside down way imaginable. And that's what we're gonna be dwelling on later on in our talk. Then we saw the basis for the authority of Jesus. The basis for the Great Commission was that God had given Jesus all authority on heaven and on earth. And he had that in a special way after he was raised from the dead. Jesus was obedient unto death. He had captured, um, he had conquered death and is now uh, by God's declaration to be the Lord of the universe. And Jesus, now that he's the Lord of heaven and earth and has authority over heaven and earth, says, guess what I've decided to do? I've decided to send you and you and you and you to go into the world and to make disciples, to replicate yourselves, uh, to, uh, to turn uh, Simon Peters into more Simon Peters, to turn Mary Magdalene's into more Mary Magdalene's so that people will uh, throughout the earth learn of my teachings and be baptized into the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we saw the booster for the Great Commission, which was the promise of God's presence. It's no mistake that he says at the end of verse 20, I am with, I myself am with you always, even to the end of the age. That represents God's empowering and God's enabling. And I have to uh, confess that as I've been studying this passage this week and been trying to convey to you the odd way in which we are to fulfill the Great Commission, 
I'm just reminded of the fact that we need God's presence and we need God's enablement because we're supposed to do it backwards. We're supposed to do it in this upside down kingdom kind of way, uh, not in the way of uh, the world, but in the manner of the cross, we're to move out and to make disciples of the nations. In thinking about how to handle this passage for another Sunday this week, I was thinking of uh, my project for retirement. If, if, I, if you want God to laugh, tell him what your plans are. I retired like three years ago and I bought this little Rogers cable truck and I was gonna kind of put a bed in it and go to the Yukon and visit my friends in Alberta and uh, some other, go and see the Grand Canyon and all kinds of things like that. So I bought a, a Rogers cable van that has no, no windows because uh, I didn't want people sort of peering in. I, I didn't want people to know that I was sleeping in the Walmart, frankly. Uh, so I had the, the, the windows on and I even got a little sign that would send people off. And it says, um, uh, Monsignor Solar Technology, as if I looked like a company and then people wouldn't bother me. I could even sleep on the street. Well, anyway, um, it doesn't have windows at the back. And I was hoping that we would go down to a single car between me and Marion. Of course, it doesn't have a rear view mirror. And uh, Marion, I thought, would like it because she likes a car that kind of sits up high where you can see and it was really safe uh, and it wasn't all that expensive and it was going to save us money. She said, I can't, I can't see out the back. It, it doesn't have a rear view mirror. So I bought a little backup camera. Um, and the backup camera uh, works great, but it's still not the same as when you can look in the rear view mirror. And sometimes the backup camera works and sometimes the backup camera doesn't work. The point is this, that if we think of our commission as kind of moving forward, like in an RV to go and share the good news of Jesus, I found this week that it helps to look in the rear view mirror. Because as we look back earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has been preparing us and setting the stage for how we are to fulfill the Great Commission. How it is that we are to make disciples of people. And as I went through it, I became um, just blown away by how different it is that we are to be. So the topic of my sermon this afternoon is the Great Commission in the Rear View Mirror. Metaphors and synonyms. If you look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 41 to 42 on page 1, you will see in bold that there are a number of synonyms for the word disciple. You see there's a word prophet, there's a word righteous person, there's a word disciple. And if you look again in Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 to 52, lower on the page, it talks about a scribe. And scholars who have studied discipleship in the Gospel of Matthew have noticed that there are these five terms that are kind of like synonyms that describe Jesus' followers. And I thought it would be helpful as we uh, think about um, our mission as fulfillers of the Great Commission to consider these five uh, synonyms and also to look at some of the other ways in which disciples are described in the Gospel of Matthew. And each one of them involves uh, a, a kind of a, a surprising role. Uh, I must confess that I guess I thought that once Jesus went through his, uh, his humble and meek ministry of dying for our sins and his suffering, 
that when it came to the Great Commission, he would kind of now say, okay, now that I died for everybody's sins and I suffered on the cross, um, all of that stuff is over. And you guys can just go with this mega program that involves whatever it is, servant leadership or discipleship programs or new technology, you know, kind of like new equipment for your church or whatever. Let's modernize things. The, the sad times are past, uh, but the, uh, the good times are ahead. Go and take the world in this model kind of way. But the rearview mirror says otherwise. Look, for example, about what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 24, the first of our texts. And I, it, it takes a while to get, to get around this, but Jesus says, a disciple, that's you and me, are not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his master and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? See, it's tempting to think that yes, uh, Jesus was um, a servant. Jesus was humble, but we can kind of put that beside us. And now we can be um, authoritarian individuals. We can be competent servant leaders. But Jesus said, if I went about changing the world and becoming incarnate as the second person of the Trinity by being um, a teacher of the character that I am and a master of the character that I am, it's enough for you to be like me. So in a way, the Great Commission, I think, is telling us that um, when we go into the world, we, we go into it in the same way that Jesus conducted his ministry. And in fact, one of the five words for a disciple, it's actually epitomized in more than one, but probably scribe is the one that epitomizes it the most, is we are to be a scribe. We are simply to imitate the teachings of Jesus, the character of Jesus, and do it exactly the way that he did it. I thought that once Jesus went through to suffer because they were expecting him to be um, a messiah who was going to be a king that Jesus's servanthood and um, his suffering was something that he took on for us and now we could move beyond but Jesus says in effect elsewhere in the gospel of Matthew as we lead up to the great commission that we are to go and make disciples in the same way that Jesus made disciples Jesus didn't have a home Jesus was poor. Jesus was humble. Jesus, frankly, got creamed. And so the Great Commission is the furthest thing you can imagine from something that's vitriolic and victorious. It is a mandate to go out into the world and to do, the best examples that I can think of are the Francis of Assisi thing, or, uh, though not a Christian, some of the things that Gandhi emulated. And so um, our, our commission is, is, is colored by these terms, a scribe, a prophet, a righteous person, a disciple. If you turn to the pages that I um, photocopied for you, I want you to see, I think I photocopied for you pages uh, six and seven. Let's look at these terms for disciple together. And one of the nice things about it is that as we're going through these five terms, 
you can ask yourself which kind of a person you are the most like. It's not that we're all Simon Peters or Mary Magdalene's or uh, Thomas's or Matthew's, but one of the characteristics of a disciple maker is a prophet. And as it says on page six of your handout, the prophet delivers a twofold message, first focusing on salvation and then following the rejection of this message on judgment. You see, the first commission that Jesus gave was in Matthew chapter 10. And one of the other things I learned this week, and I attached an appendix which has Matthew chapter 10 on it, because Matthew chapter 10 was not just simply a limited time commission to go to the, to go to the Jews. It's, it's loaded with stuff that is general and that is applicable to all. So if you want a commentary on, um, on the Great Commission, Jesus' commission to his disciples in chapter 10 is relevant. So when Jesus told his disciples to go into Israel, he said, pronounce your blessing on a place that, that accepts you. Um, if there's a place that rejects you, shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. So as we move out into the world, we can be like prophets, bringing the news of salvation. And when it is received, that's great. And when it's not, it's not good. And some people have even suggested that we as followers of Jesus might actually have a role to play in how soon Jesus returns. If we go into the world and it's, uh, the message is received, uh, then that, we're told in one passage is implied in Matthew, might well mean that Jesus is then ready to come. Uh, but if we experience a place that rejects us, then judgment is building, and that will affect the way in which Jesus um, judges when he comes. The other is a righteous person. The righteous person is a kind of a catalyst for change. The righteous person is um, somebody who makes you decide between following Jesus or not by how they live. It's a person who conforms to the will of God. It's a person who you maybe met once or twice in your lifetime and you run into them and you sort of think, wow, that person is incredibly special. There's just something different about that person that I like. Or maybe that person is so holy that you don't like them. There's something about them that gets under your skin. That's the second category of a person who is a righteous person. The third, let's turn to the top of page seven, is the disciple teacher. This is the word disciple, and it's the one that's used in Matthew 28. It's used 73 times throughout the gospel in relation to the followers of Jesus. And it's understood to refer, and here I'm reading on page seven, to one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil, an apprentice, and in a more technical sense, to one who's rather constantly associated with someone who has a pedagogical reputation or a particular set of views. You're an adherent. It is clear that the evangelist's discipleship ideal includes a strong educational component. So here the idea is that we are to be uh, students of the word, students of Jesus. I was staggered to be reminded again in some of the commentaries that uh, Jerome uh, reminded us, for example, that many Jews in his day knew the Torah, the five books of Moses. They could just recite it. And also the prophets. My friends, that's about two-thirds of the Old Testament. They had it memorized. I talked to a Muslim this week on St. George Street who told me that although he didn't believe in God or he wasn't really sure anymore, that he knew a good part of the Quran by heart. Like we just sort of think, like, you know, we spend weeks memorizing like one verse. 
But um, these were people who by nature would just kind of take on a whole major section of the Bible and memorize it. That's how serious this um, teacher-student relationship is. And if you're sometimes frustrated by the, the length or the depth of teaching that you receive at Christ King, I, I take responsibility for all that's wrong about that. But I, 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 I want to endorse the idea of becoming a student of Jesus and a student of the word. Uh, Christians are word-centered people because um, Jesus um, has given us his teachings no, in no better place than in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. The fourth one is a wise man. This is a spiritually discerning leader, a teachable leader, a religiously motivated community leader who avoids the twin dangers of tyranny on the one hand, and on the other hand, an absence of power that results in chaos. We're saying it's, it's one of the, the elder types. Our Aboriginal people are fond of talking about the elders in their community to whom they look for, for, for wisdom and direction. This would be the equivalent of a Christian elder, somebody who makes decisions about the interpretation of the word of God, where there might be some question about it, as Jesus did in Matthew, with regard to the washing of hands, keeping the Sabbath, and other things. And then the fifth one is the scribe. And the scribe is to promote the law of their king. And the scribe, um, these, these roles kind of overlap, uh, but the, the scribe was what Matthew understood himself to be. And Matthew gives a kind of a throwaway line that we saw earlier in Matthew, if you remember, and it's on page, um, cited on page one, Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 to 52. After giving the parables, Jesus said, have you understood all of this? They said to him, yes. And then Jesus said to them, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. It's somebody who reads the word of God and who discerns the word of God and who, um, who teaches you to obey it in, in, in the Jesus kind of way. So there are these different metaphors or these different synonyms for uh, what it means to be a disciple. Then in addition to those, there are some character traits. And the one that I found hard to get my mind around, but which wasn't surprising, is at the bottom of page seven, and it's littleness. Jesus calls his disciples little ones. He also calls us children, kids, slaves, uh, servants, brothers. We're to have a littleness in the way that we go about the Great Commission. And this is what it makes it hard for me to imagine how this actually works um, in real life. Like, if you, if you have a plan to go and share the gospel with everyone around the world, you'd think of programs and initiatives and, and chutzpah and, um, and being a great orator and those other things. But no, it's littleness. It's doing those things that Jesus did that don't draw attention. And it's kind of like a, a groundswell that'll take place from underneath where people recognize that there is a character to us that is different than that of the world. It is, my friends, called the way of the cross. I read a poem this week. That I think captured something of this. It was written by Ruth Harms Cocken. And she says, you know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm in a Bible study. 
But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. That's the kind of a commission that I think we're given. It's to emulate the teachings of Jesus. It's doing things in private. It's being that little person who isn't looking for attention, who just quietly turns the world upside down in the Jesus kingdom way of the cross kind of way. Why are we supposed to do this? Even though Jesus has accomplished his mission by being a servant, it has to do with Christology. It's not that, it's not that we have some uh, mission ahead where we need to be humble. But it's, it's, it's who Jesus is. It's who Jesus continues to be. And um, we, we just can't do it or couldn't think of doing it any other way. I mean, you could do it other way and be successful, but it's not the Jesus way. And I want to draw your attention to one thing that, that I, I struck me in my, in my notes as I was going through it. If you're wondering about whether you're doing things in the Great Commission way, ask yourself, are we doing it by way of the cross? Lots of other ways to gather attention, lots of other ways to be successful, but the Jesus way is to move out and to make disciples and to teach them the way of the cross, the way of a servant. Someone said a, a Christian is like a, a tea bag, not much good until it has gone through hot water. We are to be those who suffer. Um, not because we're masochists, not because we're going to accomplish something particularly dramatic through suffering, but it's just in the nature of Jesus. It's who he is. It's who he was. And it's who he's mandated us to be. My friends, we need a lot of help in thinking about how to fulfill the Great Commission in ways that are in keeping with the will of the Father as revealed through the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And I wonder if there are not if there hasn't been more progress over the centuries because we have been tempted to do it in the way of the world. We're to do it in a very humble, little, childlike, obedient, suffering way that models the character of Jesus. Make disciples by teaching people to obey the things that Jesus taught and to imitate Jesus in just about every way. It's a challenge. It's our commission, and it is the Great Commission, and it's what we have been challenged and encouraged to do by God in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.